Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and it's great to be talking to you again. A special note of thanks to those who supported Year of Polygamy in 2022. If you've noticed, we've been revamping the site, updating episodes with better show notes, better sources, better links, better photographs. So thanks for all the years of support for this podcast. It's really meant a lot. One of the most rewarding things is seeing how it has inspired so many people within the Mormon community and Mormon adjacent community to look into their own family history. And I always love it when folks send me emails, even if I can't respond to all those emails, I really appreciate the nice notes that you send and and just all the love you've shown me over the years. Tonight's episode is going to be really special and fun because I'm bringing on a friend and hero of mine, Todd Compton, who wrote the book In Sacred Loneliness. It inspired this podcast in so many ways. Back in the good old bad days of of blogging, I was writing for Feminist Mormon Housewives. It was a blog started by Lisa Butterworth, uh, an amazing woman who's sort of my midwife who brought me into this this world of Mormon feminism. And I blogged with all these incredible Mormon women about Mormon issues. And, um, you know, it became such a passion of mine that I started a little series on what we call FMH, the blog, about the wives of Joseph Smith, pulling from Todd Compton's research and that eventually turned into this podcast and turned into the history of Mormon polygamy. So it's really great to sort of come full circle and have an episode with Todd. We're going to get into the interview with him. I just want to give a special thanks to Todd's lovely sisters, Tina, Tammy, and Terry Ann, who do the readings for us at the end. They're fantastic. So we're going to pull from Todd's new book. Todd has a new book out, which is kind of the old book. It's the same book in Sacred Loneliness that has taught so many of us about the lives and wives of Joseph Smith. And his new edition in Sacred Loneliness, the documents that you can buy from Signature Books at Benchmark Books is an addition, a supplement to the great work that he's already done. He includes a lot of the letters and texts from these women in their own words. So we're going to get into that today. And at the end, Todd's lovely sisters give us the reading. So we'll get into that. I am so delighted to bring on someone who is a personal hero of mine, someone who's been a very kind and generous mentor with his work and someone who really inspired the the year of polygamy podcast and i would say has helped shed light on mormon polygamy in a way that no one else has todd compton todd compton welcome back to the podcast oh thank you so much thank you for having me and um let me just say that i'm delighted to be talking to someone who i feel like is a perfect reader of in sacred loneliness that we're going to talk about because people read it in different ways and so people read it as a, you know, totally about Joseph Smith. But I really like how you've concentrated, like I did, concentrated on the women and, and their lives and their whole lives. And so it's it's great to, to talk to you, to someone like that. <laughs> oh, I, I, the thanks belongs to you. I think you laid out a pattern. I remember years and years ago now when I first encountered your book to to see that these women had these interior lives outside of just what they meant for Mormon history, what they meant, you know, in relation to Joseph Smith was sort of radical for me. It was a radical new way to look at history where people could be people in their own right. And I really hadn't experienced that with Mormon history until I read your first book. So 
Yeah, I think a lot of people can say that your book has changed their life. And I I would be willing to bet most of them could say for the better. So that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was talking to one friend of mine who I won't name. He's a pretty well-known historian. And he's been really supportive of me through the years, comes to my book signings. But he said he'd never read my book. <laughs> oh, wow. And, but he was supportive of what I was trying to do with the book. Uh, <laughs> I think he read in the book and read parts of it. Yeah, I th- I think, uh, at least for me, two of the most foundational books of all Mormon history are uh, Mormon Enigma. I always recommend that. And In Sacred Loneliness. And it's interesting because people will say, well, what about Rough Stone Rolling or a biography about Joseph Smith? And I think that those are important. But for me to get the story of Mormonism... Uh, I, maybe it's because I'm a woman and I, you know, I've lived a life through the the eyes of a woman myself in the church. For some reason, I think that those two are the ones that best tell, tell early Mormon history. So I'm delighted that you have decided to add on to the project. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's funny, you are probably most known for writing this book and second only to that known for being very hesitant to go on podcasts at all. (laughs) I've kind of tried to support this new book more. I can't listen to myself. (laughs) Um, Well, it's, it's the way of the world now, I guess it's, it's it's kind of forces you out of your comfort zone. So I understand that, but uh, why don't you uh, let's just get into it. I'm just grateful you're willing to, to talk to us again, but um, Talk to me about how you got into this history to begin with. What got you interested? Well, for all these questions, you could get the long answer or the short answer. Just a little bit about my background. I was, you know, a Mormon background, and I went on a mission, and I went to BYU. My dad taught at BYU. But I was always interested in history, even though I ended up studying ancient Greek and Latin, and was focusing on myth, myth and ritual, that kind of thing. But I'd always been interested in Mormon history. It was always fascinating. And I remember my dad had Mount Meadows Massacre on the bookshelf. I read in that. I remember I I went to some of the early Sunstone conferences, and I always really enjoyed going to history sessions in Sunstone conferences. So I liked Mormon history, but I'd never seriously studied it. And then when I got, I got to UCLA and I was doing my graduate work in Greek and Latin myth ritual, but I had some really good friends who were in my program who were women who were interested in women's studies. And so uh, I really learned from from them and they recommended books for me to read and so on. So I was interested in you know, women's perspectives and women in history and in literature. So that's a little bit about my background. I just, I was kind of gradually became a liberal Mormon and there are all kinds of liberal Mormons, but I think I fit in that definition, but I was still attending church and, and active, active in church. But then, so what happened was I got done with my program and I was having trouble finding a job, and I wrote an essay about writing in sacred loneliness. 
that appeared in Joe Geisner's book. What was it? Writing Mormon History. And so if you want the fuller story, you can go to that. Yeah, that book um, is a great, it's a great collection. We talked about it here about how historians ended up writing their history. Uh-huh. And um, so what happened was a friend of mine who I knew in the LA First Ward, she ended up going to the University of Utah and getting a PhD kind of in Mormon history. And so she knew at the Huntington Library, they had some of the diaries of Eliza R. Snow. So she wrote me a letter and said, Todd, why don't you apply to get a summer fellowship at the Huntington Library? And you could apply to work on the diaries of Eliza R. Snow. And here are some of the things you could say, you know, she <laughs> almost wrote the application for me. And I thought it was kind of a crazy idea because I had no background at all in doing Mormon history. But I thought, gee, this won't take very long to do this application. So I did it and used some of her, what she had written in her uh, recommendation to me in her letter and sent it in to the Huntington Library and totally forgot about it. And then like four or five months later, I got this letter from the Huntington saying I had received this summer fellowship to work on Eliza R. Snow. <laughs> and I've applied for many things where I was really well qualified. Like I was, the, I felt like I was the only one who was qualified to, to receive the fellowship or the job, whatever, and have not received what I des really deserved to get. And in this one, I received what I absolutely did not deserve to get. <laughs> and so that's what turned me to um, Mormon history, actually working on Mormon history. I felt since I had the the fellowship, I, I really ought to I really ought to follow through on it. So I started working on the diaries of Eliza R. Snow, and I went into the Huntington Library one day and uh, wrote my application to read the diary of Eliza R. Snow, and they gave it to me, and I sat down and I held in my hand the actual little book that Eliza Snow had written in when she was crossing the plains. So I could just imagine her sitting at the campfire and writing in this little book and this very precise, but very readable penmanship. And so that was kind of a thrill to actually have her diary in my hands. And in ancient Greek and Latin, you're working with copies of copies of copies of copies. It was kind of exciting to actually have the original right there. And so then I, from just working on her diaries, and I was thinking of just doing a publishing those diaries and um, adding footnotes. And part of the footnotes would be to explain anything that the reader doesn't understand. And one of those would be her friends who she refers to in the diary. So I felt like I needed I knew that Eliza R. Snow was a plural wife of Brigham Young, had been a plural wife of Joseph Smith. And so I felt like I really needed good lists of those wives to recognize who these women were, who she referred to. And so I started creating lists of those women. And with Joseph Smith, I didn't find a really good, reliable list. And um, the closest thing was the Fawn Brody appendix, where she listed about 60 or 70 women who were known as wives of Joseph Smith. And that was, 
that was worthwhile. That was worth looking at and worth tracking down a lot of these women. But I felt like it wasn't really reliable. It was she had written it before the archives were open, and which wasn't her fault, but there was a lot of data that she was missing. And she was using a lot of late anti-Mormon sources. And so I felt I, I needed to find a really good list of Joseph Smith's wives, and I couldn't find one, so I started creating one myself. And so then, I just to create this list, I found out that really to, to identify a woman, you needed a birthday, you needed a death date, you needed maybe a little bit about her parents. Um, definitely, you needed the marriages she'd been part of, because some of these women were married four or five times in their lifetimes, and the name changed every time they got married. And so at one part of their life, they were known by one name, say Brackenbury, and another part of their life, they were known by another name, say Durfee, just to think about one woman who was, um, uh, what was her name? Elizabeth Davis, Goldsmith, Brackenbury, Durfee, Smith, Lot. I believe she she went through a lot of marriages and she was in Nauvoo. She was known as Sister Durfee. Earlier, she was known as Sister Brackenbury. And then just to confuse the historian later in her life, she lived with her Brackenbury sons in California. And then she went back to using Brackenbury name again. <laughs> so in her later life, she's known as. So just to get that data on all of the the women who were wives of Joseph Smith was a, it was a challenge, but it was a really fun challenge. It was, I found out that, that writing history is kind of like detective work, you know, just to find for one of these fairly obscure women, just to find a good birthday was often like a big job. And then it was a triumph when, it, when you found it. So also to create this list, I had to really make a judgment on who I really thought were the wives of Joseph Smith. And so then I, that made me really wade into the thicket of Nauvoo polygamy. Let me ask history. you about that really quick. Um, yeah. How did you determine that? Cause that's still a question today. I podcast now with Brian Buchanan over the Sunstone Mormon history podcast. And Brian has a few times He's really into finding secret plural wives of Brigham Young or Heber Kimball based on the ceilings and the temple uh -huh. uh, going ins and outs of Nauvoo at the time. So how did you do that? Because it's it's hard for my mind to wrap it around. You really set the foundation. So I don't know what it would have looked like when there was no foundation to work from. <laughs> uh, there, there, there were good scholars, good historians before me. And um, Danielle Bachman had done a um, had done a work on Joseph Smith's polygamy. Uh, Van Wagner had done Mormon polygamy, and he did a he did a article that had been published in Dialogue about Nauvoo polyandry. So I I used the work of Juanita Brooks because. She was really good at writing in, in the books she edited. She was really good at writing these little short biographies in her footnotes. And some of those helped. So that was one of the things that happened when I started doing Mormon history is I really had to catch up on the work that had gone before me. 
which was exciting, you know, but a lot of lot of reading to do. So Andrew Jensen was a assistant church historian in the 1800s, you know, 1860s, 70s, and 80s, 90s. He got interested in the plural wives of Joseph Smith. And so he published a list in what was it around 1886. And he published a list of 87 of 27 women who he felt could be documented as wives of Joseph Smith. And there were living wives of Joseph Smith at the time. He could talk to Eliza R. Snow, Helen Marr Whitney, and um, William Clayton was alive. And by the way, as far as contemporary evidence for Joseph Smith's polygamy, we have the uh, William Clayton diaries where he, he documents marriages that Joseph Smith was part of and Joseph Smith performed a marriage of him to a plural wife. And so William Clayton was alive. He could talk to William Clayton. So that list of 27 is, is helpful, but it isn't, it isn't footnoted. <laughs> and I wanted a good footnoted list of Joseph Smith's wives. So this, this got to be this totally fascinating job for me to, to, to create this list of Joseph Smith's wives. And I, there I was at the Huntington Library, and they're just paying me to go there and read and study Eliza R. Snow. And uh, I, you know, walk around the gardens all you want. I don't know how much time you spent there, but it's a beautiful place to visit. So just an incredible experience for me that I got just by total accident. And so there is this kind of like this detective work element of just putting together the, the basic skeletal lives of these women. Then I found, of course, it, if you're trying to write these little biographies, sometimes it helped if you could find primary sources like things they had written themselves that their brothers or sisters had written. And so I found um, the Eliza Snow Smith Lyman diaries there. They, the Huntington had given me time. I sat down and put the spool of microfilm on the microfilm reader and just read through her whole diary. And that is a great diary. That is a wonderful diary. And both those Partridge sisters were really fine writers, really evocative writers. And I got really emotionally connected with Eliza Partridge because of that. She ended up, her son, Platt Lyman, she had been a plural wife of Amasa Lyman, the apostle, but her son, Platt Lyman, was one of the leaders of the Hole in the Rock expedition to southern, southeastern Utah. And that was one of the final frontiers of Utah. And the second year, Platt brought Eliza back with him. And Eliza was raising her grandchild, Joseph Callister. So... It, it, it was a wonderful diary, and it was really exciting to see her going into this really difficult situation for pioneers. So I, that added a level of emotional connection to these women when I was working on them. Now, I, 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 I yeah. love that it started with Eliza R. Snow and her diaries, mm -hmm. and then it, it expanded from there because... I think I think you're right. There's something about the the network of these women that is still, you know, not talked about enough in in the mainstream church. But certainly historians are more aware of it. But the fact that Eliza R. Snow is sitting around the campfire with these women connected through marriage, 
it's uh it really was a a society of women an eternal society and you saw that in the clues of her journal which i think is kind of beautiful uh, uh-huh and she's eliza r snow quite different than a lot of the other women i i i dealt with i came to really like her but she wasn't as when she wrote obviously she wasn't as folksy as the others um so she was very well educated very precise in the way she wrote so she was very different but I, I did get that emotional connection with her too, but in a different way than Eliza Lyman. Another thing that's different of her is she never had children. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about Eliza Lyman's diary was her, her connection with her children. And so, but I was single when I was writing In Sacred Loneliness, and I have friends who've always been single. And so that, that, gave me a connection with Eliza Snow, too, that she never had kids. At the same time, she had this mothering instinct that came through, like when she was a Relief Society leader and dealing with these other women she was so close to and loved. So let's see, have I answered your question yet? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I I love thinking of you sitting in the Huntington Library where so many researchers have been, you know, of course, Juanita Brooks donated a some of those documents and journals you were probably looking through. So, oh yeah, she was. She became a collector for the Huntington Library, and that's one of the reasons they had a fine Mormon library when I went there. So yep. she contributed to In Sacred Loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> and probably now, what, so what's your many connection other with? What's your connection with Juanita? Are you you're related, right? You're a Levitt. I'm I'm a Levitt through, and this is something we haven't talked about on here through. Priscilla Levitt's line. So another thing about Todd, which I was trying to think as we were talking, if I'd ever gotten you to talk on the podcast about polygamy, I think we've talked about Jacob Hamblin's life, but because you did uh, an incredible biography on Jacob Hamblin and one of his wives is a Levitt, uh, of course, related through Juanita, her grandfather, Dudley Levitt was the brother of the the woman that I come through. And okay. So you're a descendant of Jacob Hamlin? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's great. I knew you yeah. were Levitt, but I didn't know you were a Hamlin too. Oh, that's cool. Hamlin Levitt. Yeah. And that's why huh. when you wrote A Frontier Life, it it's such, it's another great, it's actually one of my favorite books about the Wild West, I would say, because Hamlin is, is a <laughs> fantastic character. And, you know, Juanita Brooks, you can't write about Hamblin without working with Juanita's work. So that's really uh-huh. true. Yeah. And here, I haven't thought about it, but yeah, she, uh, without the Mormon library at the at the Huntington, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that I would have been given that, that fellowship. I'm really not still sure why, but I think they wanted to encourage Mormons to to do Mormon history because of their Mormon library there. Anyway, one thing I wanted to mention is that um, you could ask, why didn't you go ahead and publish the diaries of Eliza R. Snow? What happened with that is it turned out that Maureen Ersenbach Beecher already, it turned out, was working on the diaries of Eliza R. Snow. And so she found out through, you know, 
through the grapevine that I was working, I was starting to work on the diaries of Eliza R. Snow, and she contacted me. And so we talked about what we were doing. And as a result, I decided just to switch my focus totally to the plural wives of Joseph Smith, you know, and let her go ahead and and do the Eliza R. Snow diaries. And of course, she went ahead and published them in a great way. And so that led me to just work on the the plural wise totally. Did she, was she able to use your research that you had up until that point? Um, some of it. Yeah. And we talked about, we, we talked about the plural wise of Joseph Smith. And I remember I, I was in Provo one time. I went all the time. I was living in Southern California, but my, my family, my parents were living in Provo at that time. And so I'd stay with them. But I remember going and visiting Maureen, going to her office at BYU, and that was a lot of fun. And so she had some questions about Joseph Smith plural wise. And I wasn't really an authority at that time, but I was kind of starting my (laughs) research. And she gave me some documents that really helped in writing In Sacred Loneliness. So, and I checked some things at the Huntington Library for her when she needed needed someone to check some things. So it became a mutually beneficial friendship. Yeah, and I love I love the idea of it starting out that way. And and was the Huntington supportive of this switch? Well, I didn't even tell them about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still working on Eliza R. Snow. They they knew that Maureen Erzenbach Beecher was working on those diaries. That was no that was no secret. So <laughs> I wonder if they gave me that fellowship just to encourage her to finally finish what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked no matter what happened. Yeah. And it turned in, into not only an incredible list, but a list of lives of these women. And then the church through their eyes, which again, I think was so such a radical thing for me at the time I was in my twenties, you know, when I first discovered this stuff and it was, it, it changed my life in, in so many ways. And I don't think, you know, the little college student at the time, Todd Compton could know the impact he would have on so many people's lives sitting in that library. But um, yeah. So talk to me about the the new book now. Let, let's explain to listeners what it is and why you decided to add on to it. Okay. Let me get to that. But let me finish one other thing. I just want to com- continue the story to say, after this introduction at the Huntington Library, then I got totally obsessed. <laughs> it's, 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 it's this wonderful obsession, but a terrible obsession too. You know, and I just devoted my whole life to, to working on this book. And it was just totally fascinating. And at the same time, it was totally emotionally involving too. Um, so I had a lot of trips up to Utah to do research. I did research in the RLDS Community of Christ archives and in Illinois. And you know, a lot more of an obsession than I expected or than was good for me. But and what um, year, what time period is this now? But people compliment me that that I did such a great job of research. And it was like, it was just this wonderful obsession. It was just totally fascinating. <laughs> you know, and to explain it, Quinn kind of expresses it best, the late, great D. Michael Quinn, where he said every day he went to the archives was like Christmas morning. 
that's that's how it was. Every day I could go to the archives uh, at LDS Archives or the Huntington. It was like Christmas morning. It was like this wonderful day celebration and research. So and new gifts, I'm sure. And but the archives are exciting in that way. It's finding new presents. The detective work yep. you're talking about. What what time period was this when you were obsessed with the research? Uh, well, it was the book was published in 90, 1997, so I guess it was in the. I should know my history better. You know, it was in the early like nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. Yeah, I asked that because I was curious to what the tone was when you were researching, because of course everyone knows about the September sixth in nineteen ninety three. Uh, in 91, there was excommunications as well. That's when the statement against symposia came out against Sunstone. There was sort of this backlash happening. Did people know that you were writing this? And what was sort of their reaction when they heard about it? Yeah, it yeah, it was it was no secret, though I wasn't like a major figure in Mormon history. I'm still not, but um, you know, I've published a few books. I'm known now. But back then I wasn't known at all. But what I would, you know, when I went to the LDS church archives, I would just say I'm working on the lives of the plural wives of Joseph Smith, which was totally, totally honest. That's what I was working on. And I think some conservative people, that would have raised a danger sign for some conservative people. But generally, I think they weren't, I wasn't, I wasn't known as someone who was focused on Joseph Smith but was focused on these women, which I was. So I think I, I was viewed as less of a threat, I guess. But I had continued through my life. I'd continued going to Sunstones. Albert Peck asked me to give some papers at one point. So I started giving papers at Sunstone. And so I was giving like chapters about these women in in, in Sunstone before it was ever published. But um, and and during this period, the the September seven excommunications happened. So I was thoroughly decided sympathetic with those who were excommunicated, um, and I got to I've got to know most of them, all of them. Um, I so I, I as as I say, I was a liberal Mormon. Were you so worried that, about any sort of backlash? Yeah, that's that? something that I worried about. I mean, that I was, I knew there was a possibility that there might be uh, repercussions. And in fact, there kind of were, but that's a whole nother story. Well, I, I do want to ask about that. I, I probably skipped ahead to the new book too quickly. Let's talk about the response when you did publish In Sacred Loneliness for the first time. So you finish oh, that up, oh. you get it published. Talk to us about what happened. Okay. Well, the book. You know, and we're leaving the story of how I wrote the book and leaving a lot of details of that out. But finally, and leaving the details of how I got it published. Again, it was my first book. I was very insecure about it. Uh, it just seemed like, you know, will this ever get published? But finally it did. Uh, the Signature Books and came out. And Signature Books was connected, it was associated with people who had been excommunicated. So, however, as I say, I I was I think people realized that I was writing about these women 
and Joseph Smith was in there, but it wasn't a ma- it wasn't the main focus of what I was writing about. And so, as far as a response from the organized church, people told me that there were I got to know some of the archivists, the church library and archives, and one of them told me that some of like the mid level bureaucrats were really upset about my book, but the higher, you know, the higher up bureaucrats were more cautious. (laughs) And it turned out that uh, it won the MHA Best Book of the Year Award with the Community of Christ, won Best Book of the Year with them also. I'm told that people realized, people told the people in in, in the institutional church that my documentation was really thorough. You know, they said they realized that it was bulletproof documentation. So there was no immediate response from the organized church. And I guess I was kind of like Juanita Brooks, wondering what would happen. And then in some ways, it affected how people treated her, how some conservatives treated her. But in other ways, she continued as a church member. And so I guess that's kind of how it was with me. You didn't one, have your Juan Brody day where they announced you in the paper and then they wrote articles <laughs> about you. Yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering about that because studying Juanita Brooks, it was almost like the silence was worse than the headlines for her. <laughs> yeah, and um, my parents eventually moved down to southern Utah and you may not know this story, but they were missionaries. And so they were missionaries, older missionaries down in southern Utah in St. George. And they were assigned to work at the Jacob Hamblin House. I would visit them periodically because of them working as missionaries down there. I got interested in Jacob Hamblin. I didn't so, know that's how that started. That's that's so yeah. fascinating. Uh-huh. And okay, however, I'm leading to a story here. And when the book was published, oh, who was it who did the AP story? I should know my own history better. There was a guy in Salt Lake City, and he did a story about my book coming out and Joseph Smith having plural wives. So it was syndicated. It was an AP story, and it was syndicated throughout the country. And my parents told me they opened up the newspaper that Sunday morning, and there there was my picture and um, kind of an interview with me and a summary of the book. And my parents were like, oh, 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 oh no. And, <laughs> um, and in their ward was a retired general authority and who was a Sunday school teacher. And my dad kind of team taught with him. And that morning, that, that retired general authority brought that in and he just announced, denounced my book and denounced me. And my father was very, obviously, he was upset, and, but very quiet. Did the authority not know of the connection? No, or he, did didn't know know of, he didn't know of the connection. Oh, no. And he denounced me for having done all of my research at the Huntington Library, where most of the stuff is up in the main library in Salt Lake City. And of course, he didn't read thoroughly enough to realize that I had done a lot of research in the, the main library in Salt Lake City. Anyway, so that's that's one example of uh, someone who was conservative who had this 
intense reaction against my book at, you know, when it came out. And he hadn't read my book either. There was a lot he didn't know. Now, I have to add that later he came to my dad. He Someone told him that I was dad's son. <laughs> and so he came and apologized to my dad. So I thought that was nice that he would do that, that he would apologize. And later, he, my dad was having health problems, and this general authority had been a, a doctor. And so he really helped my dad with his health problems. And so, there, you know, there's a, a, a good human side to that story where we could immediately just think of him as a bad guy. So, but it, it's an example. General of, authority it is, or would you rather not? No, no, I, I'll, I'll let that person go nameless. even though as i say i've come to really appreciate him for helping my dad with his health issues at at one point and that you know there was this apology where he could have just let it go but it's an example of this immediate negative response and i think the apology goes a long way and and like you said your research was so thorough is so thorough and really you let the the women speak for themselves so it would be really hard to argue that you had an agenda with this yeah and so much it has nothing to do with nauru polygamy as you say it has to do with their later lives and their early lives and though sometimes the later lives are are very difficult too because it shows how difficult polygamy could be like the diary of emily partridge young when she was married to brigham young it's a very difficult diary to read because she had such difficulty with her husband, Brigham Young, in that huge family. And so non-Navu stuff was controversial in my book. But um, later, later on, I had a state president who asked to have an interview with me because of something else I had written. Okay, so it wasn't because of in sacred loneliness. It was, I had given a talk in Sunstone about women in priesthood. So we came in, had a talk about that, and he, he was an okay, he was an okay guy and nothing, you know, there was no excommunication or anything because of it, though, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasant experience. <laughs> If the, and I remember if the, the polygamy the, didn't get you, women in the priesthood will. That's a yeah. lesson. Well, the Sacred Loneliness book did come up. I remember he said he had concerns about my work making people think less of Joseph Smith. And my, my point of view, I told him, was, look, if you have a doc, let's say you have a modern writer saying Joseph Smith was six feet five. And you find through historical research that Joseph Smith was, I believe he was actually six feet. If you take issue with the person saying he was six five and say instead he was six feet, you're not, you're not, you're not diminishing the prophet. You know, you're taking issue with someone who was falsely making him taller than he was. <laughs> and so I tried to explain to him that I was really trying to to view Joseph Smith honestly and and fully. I, I wasn't trying to make him diminish him in any way. But some of the things that he did were so difficult that if you're honestly 
reflecting them, it sometimes it doesn't make them look good. So, but that isn't the historian's fault. It's it's the the document's fault. Yeah. So I think briefly, as you were talking, they, I was thinking of the daguerreotype. How you know this new daguerreotype of Joseph Smith that's out. How we've gotten so used to this sort of cherubic Joseph Smith painting and. You know, there's still a debate on if the daguerreotype is is Smith. I tend to agree with Locke's research. And I I was similarly startled, probably in this way of it makes him so human. He's not this shiny, glossy painting. He's got a human face with wrinkles and depth and, you know, sun damage and, and things that make him look like a real frontiersman, not some statue. And the history and the documents do the same thing. And I think that's really uncomfortable for people. I was explaining in another interview that we've just continually idealized Joseph Smith more and more and more. And with someone like Brigham Young, we've always kind of had this sense of, oh, yeah, he had a lot of plural wives. But we've never been that way with Joseph Smith. And it kind of seems like his his plural, his 33 plural wives, it just his polygamy doesn't seem to fit in with the idealized Joseph Smith we've had. So it's kind of been interesting to see how people like uh, Brian Hales, Richard Bushman have dealt with Joseph Smith and his polygamy. So I really admire the fact that they're starting to, to deal with his polygamy. They just haven't totally ignored it though. I have little disagreements with them, but, it's it's I can admire that that they're actually dealing with the subject, and it's a difficult subject for very conservative Orthodox Mormons. Yeah, one has to wonder if you would have never gotten that fellowship at the Huntington if we would still not know these women. You know, <laughs> would have taken the initiative, and and what that would look like because it really did set into motion so many things and. You know, I look at that now that I've got some space behind me in the podcast to see how the podcast has, you know, inspired other people to carry the history forward. We're all just sort of, you know, to use a Mormon parlance, links in the chain of history. <laughs> and, and it's it's really it's really interesting to think about. And so maybe we this is a good segue to talk about the new book. You returned really to the old book. What what was that like? Because I you did Hamblin's biography in between, you did a uh, history of the Beatles, which I love <laughs> that people, a lot of people don't know about you, which makes you really cool in my book and uh, a real Mormon historian because a lot of Mormon historians I know are obsessed with the Beatles and Mormons. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Brian know. Buchanan, Brian Buchanan is, isn't he? Oh, yeah. You go into his, uh, Brian's den, his lair of Mormon history books, and the ceiling is plastered with Beatles albums and. <laughs> So that's, yeah, it's really fun. Um, so what, yeah, why, why did you decide to pick this up? What was it like returning to these women that you had sort of become so acquainted with? Well, we left one book out, a couple of books out, but one was the diaries of Helen Mar Whitney. So she wrote diaries later in her life. And so that was exciting to, I worked with Chick Hatch to publish those diaries. You know, after I'd done that, I kind of wanted to switch to something else. And so that's that's what that's when I got interested in Jacob Hamlin and uh, wrote that book and which 
one of the odd things for me, I was actually writing about a man, <laughs> though I, I paid very close attention to the, the women in his family, the, the wives. Um, okay, but after I, I got done with that, that took a long time. It's a big book. And the, now I'm working on a spinoff from that book. It's on a Navajo leader named Totsoni Hastin or Ganado Mucho. And so I've been working on that for a few years, but in the oh, middle I didn't of know that, that's exciting. Yeah, he was, he's, it's a spinoff of the Jacob Hamlin book. He was a friend of Jacob Hamlin. And so that's, I wanted to know more about him after I wrote the Jacob Hamlin book. It was like, gee, I've got to learn more about this. He was a very interesting person. And so rushing in where angels fear to tread, I went into a whole totally different than than mine uh, but that's that was both an exciting thing and a challenge so but it's been a lot of fun and that hopefully I'll, I'll be done with that in a year or two but it's still kind of far off but while I was in the middle of working on Totsoni Hastin um, Joe my friend Joe Geisner was writing this book that ended up as writing Mormon history where he had the idea of having Mormon historians write about how they wrote a, wrote their first book or their main book and asked me if I'd contribute an essay toward that. And um, it turned out it's a great book. It's really a wonderful book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the essays that weren't mine. Um, I was, I was, I mean, it was, for me, it was really interesting to, to see similarities between what happened with me and what happened with others, because I saw other historians become obsessed and write books in a way that was not helpful to their careers <laughs> and write books by accident. My book was totally by accident. So anyway, it's a great book. And it sounds like you've interviewed him. Yeah, but- we interviewed him. And Joe, of course, has been such a help for this podcast and been on the podcast a few times. But I think I can say, I think it's not private that he's working on another edition yeah yeah he is uh-huh so that'll that should be great also anyway so i was writing this article about writing the first in sacred loneliness and so that caused me to revisit those that time in my life and so as a historian what i went what i did is i I could write from memory a lot of it, but I also went back and found out what documents I had that gave me some background on uh, writing in sacred loneliness, like letters I had written or letters I'd received, which were really helpful to, for, you know, I started to do a chronology of writing that book. And so as I was doing this, I was going back for these documents to give me a little bit of, little bit of actual historical background, in addition, just the stories I was able to tell. As I was going back into my computer files, looking for all kinds of documents, um, what I found was a lot of the transcriptions I had made of these women's writings. And when, when I was writing in Sacred Loneliness, the way you did research is you just, you had to show up at the library, the archives, go in there with your laptop, and type out transcriptions. And now a lot of stuff is online. A lot of stuff you can work on in your home. 
But back then you did transcriptions. And so I would do transcriptions of any document that wasn't really long. I found even long, fairly long documents. I found some like it for the Helen Mar Whitney diaries. There were like three books of her diaries and I transcribed all of them. And later I found out there were more books of her diaries in the University of Utah, Utah State Library. And that's what led to my second book, the Helen Mar Whitney Diaries. Anyway, I had a lot of transcriptions and I transcribed letters, autobiographies, diaries, if I could find them. And sometimes I would transcribe diaries, autobiographies by siblings, children. So I just had a lot of these transcriptions on hand. And I it it caused me to remember when I was doing these back in the early 1990s, the you know, these documents really should be published in complete form. And so as I was writing this essay for Joe, I was looking at these transcriptions and thought, you know, this would make a good book to transcribe some of these documents by these women. And I ran the idea past Gary Berger at Signature, and it seemed like it would be nice to have a to have it published by Signature since they went out on the limb to do my first book. Gary was enthusiastic about it, encouraged me to go ahead. And so in one way, I already had the transcriptions, but so I had done a lot of the work. In another way, I still had to do a lot of work and I had to Often I had to check my manuscript against the original to see if sometimes you'd come to a problem word and say, oh, is that the right word? And so you'd have to go to the original and and check. And as you know, if you've done any transcriptions, often in original, you come across a word that's just totally unreadable. And all you can do is put illegible, but it's... At, that's one of the things I had to do to check these illegible words and see if I could figure them out. But another thing is write footnotes, just like I started to do with Eliza R. Snow back in, what was it, 92 or 93, 1992 or 93. So I collected and I decided it would be only the writings of the women themselves. I kind of felt like if I added more, the book would just be huge and um, keeping it down to just the writings of the women themselves um, kept the book in a manageable form. It still, it's like 700 pages now. But one of the problems of that that choice is that some of the women, I I have nothing that they've written. So like Fanny Alger and Lucinda Pendleton, Morgan, Harris Smith, they don't have chapters, which is too bad. But most of the women have, they wrote at least something. And some women just had like one letter, Hannah Eld. And so it was wonderful. So, and one of the ways this is different than the first book in Sacred Loneliness is that you get the complete document, okay? Now, as a historian, you're trained to be skeptical. And so if there's like a a quote from someone and you're you're doubting it for some reason. What you do is you go back and you find the quote as it is in the primary document, and you say, "Okay, in the complete document, does it really say this?" And you look at what what is before that quote and what is after the quote, because sometimes what is before and after changes the meaning. 
And so printing these complete documents will really help people who want to really dive into what I was doing in the first book. They can actually read the whole document and read what came before, what came after. But that also, when these women who, like Eliza uh, Partridge Lyman, who really were great at expressing their emotions, that comes through even in a fuller way. And so it's wonderful to have the fuller account in her own words of of her life. I thought that too. That was one of the things when I was reading through it for the first time, because I got to look at it in advanced copy and I believe I'm on the dust jacket. (laughs) Yes. Um, Thank you very much. Oh, it was was my honor. But I, I think I said something along the lines, which I absolutely believe is that these documents add so much more texture to the lives of these women who now many of us, especially listeners of the podcast, feel like they know well, you know, we can name off these lists of women. And it is sad that we don't have some documentation from some of some of the women that were connected to Joseph Smith in this way. But the ones that we do I I learned things. I remember one of the things I really liked reading was more about their later lives, you know, or things outside of their relationship to just their marriage, because it it really does not just add the texture, like I said, but it their personalities come alive in a way that you can't really get when you get a quote, you know, an isolated quote or something, and they become even more real. It's like you saying that you develop sort of this emotional connection with these women when you're researching it. How can you not when you read their private thoughts or their personal letters? It really is such a gift to to the history and to, I think, our heritage to be able to hear their voices come off the page like that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they wrote about Joseph Smith and Nauvoo, so there's some of that in the book, some important things like the Emily Partridge memoirs, Emily Partridge Young memoirs, and the uh, Lucy Walker Kimball memoirs, and Helen Marr Whitney memoir. But most of it is different parts of their lives, their later lives in Utah and different states, uh, including California, where I live right now. In fact, where I wrote, basically wrote the whole book, though I would do I would make journeys into Utah to spend time uh, working in the libraries there. But I wrote, there's a lot about their later lives in in the books. Well, and we're going to have some readings from the book following this. And we're going to have three of your sisters read some of the selections. Do you want to talk about the the pieces that you chose? Okay. So first of all, the Louisa Beeman. There's a quote from the Louisa Beeman letter. And of course, in the book, you have the, there's two or three complete letters that she wrote. And she's an example of a woman who, she was on my list that I made at the Huntington Library. And she was known as the first plural wife of Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. And um, she shows up, her name shows up in the Eliza R. Snow diaries and the Patty Sessions diaries. So we know she was good friends with them. But I really didn't know much about her. And so one day I just put her name into the computer at the LDS um, Church Archives, and her name came up. 
as uh, she had written these letters to Marinda Johnson Hyde Smith, another plural wife of Joseph Smith. And so that was, I thought, wow, great. This is exciting. And I, again, I got the uh, microfilm and spooled it up in the microfilm reader and started reading. And she, before she'd just been this name on a list and all of a sudden she was this human being. And um, I came to, I don't know if it was before this or after, but I found out that she had, she had married Brigham Young after Joseph Smith died and had five kids with Brigham Young. And they all died as children. They were all boys. And they all died as children. And so in these letters I found, they were written when she had just come to Salt Lake City. So they're a fascinating record of early Salt Lake City. But she tells the story of how her last two children died. And they had been born as she crossed the plains. They were twins. And then she came to Utah and she lost both of these little children. And it's, you know, not only had she come alive as a human being, I was really deeply moved by how she expressed this tragedy in her life. So um, I've really come to felt, feel a real deep bond to her. And let me just mention that um, lately, like just in the last few years, I thought, you know, I ought to visit all of the graves of these women and take pictures, you know, and I should have done it before, but so I started doing this and I found out that there was no gravestone for Louisa Beeman and no one knew where she was buried. And finally I talked with Randy Dixon, who's, uh, who was a archivist at the church library. And he had found documentation that she was buried in the um, Salt Lake city graveyard, but um, the, the gravestone is, is missing now but we know where she was buried. So we can make that journey and pay her, pay respect to her. But I am starting a movement to try to get a gravestone put up where her grave is. So that will be an ongoing thing for me. She was, she was really a wonderful person. And this passage we'll read is very moving. And my youngest sister, Tina, has been reading this. And so she feels like she has this connection with Louisa also. So let's go with that clip. Thanks to Todd's sister, Tina, for, for reading this. You from a mistake, how do I tell you with all the things in my way? What could I ever say? I am led to think at times there is not much else but sorrow and affliction in this world for me. The next day, after I arrived in the valley, my babes were both taken sick with the bowel complaint. The canker set in, and on the 11th of October, I was called upon to give up the oldest one, and his little spirit took its flight to join with his brothers and father in heaven. My anxiety was all turned towards the other that was living. The next day, after this one was buried, the other commenced to get better. He got so that he seemed well and grew fleshy as fast as I ever saw a child, and I even dared to hope that I should raise him. But I no sooner hoped than my hopes were all blasted one day. All in a moment, as it were, he was taken down again with the same complaint, 
and all I could do, both by faith and works, did not seem to do any good. And on the 16th of November, he breathed his last, and I was again left alone. You that have been mothers and lost children can better imagine my feelings than I can describe them. I had fondly hoped I should raise them. They looked very much alike indeed. Their eyes were just of a color. I called them Alva and Alma, but they are gone. And I must be reconciled to the will of God. And I desire ever to acknowledge his hand in all things. I look forward to the time when I shall again behold them and clasp them to my bosom. Will not my joy be full? I feel as though it would. I desire to bear all of my afflictions with patience, realizing that my Heavenly Father knows better what is for my good than myself. And I feel to submit all things into His hands and say, His will be done and not mine. As far as uh, her, this effort for her gravestone, how can we help you with that? Uh, well, at this point, I don't know, except if you know any descendants of Brigham Young, see if they can get the Brigham Young family organization to get interested in putting up a grave. So other than that, at this point, I'm just trying to see if some of my young friends work with the family organization. Yeah, I don't know if the institutional church has authority for uh, putting up a grave. Some people believe that her her children who died in Salt Lake City were the first people buried in the Brigham Young graveyard. Again, there's no gravestones for them. But if if Louisa had been buried there, I think the church owns that. So then that would be something you could pick up with the church. But at this point, I think it would be a young family thing. Yeah, keep us posted on that. And uh, okay. any any young descendants out there, maybe if you want to help with this, I can connect you with Todd. So tell us about the next reading that we're going to hear. On the next reading, I won't talk as long about, but one of Joseph Smith's plural wives, Agnes Moulton, Coolbreath, Smith, 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 Pickett, <laughs> um, had been uh, a wife of Don Carlos Smith, who died, and then she married Joseph Smith, who died. And then she eventually married up, ended up married to William Pickett, who was kind of a lapsed Mormon. And the Picketts went to California. And they, uh, Don Carlos and Agnes had a daughter who they named Josephine. And so she came to California, and she was a teenager in living in Los Angeles while in California, and she was writing letters to her cousin, Joseph F. Smith, who later became the president of the LDS Church. It's kind of funny to see him as a young man and her writing letters to him. But she wrote a, she for some reason, she really turned against polygamy. And as this, like, I think she was 16 years old, she wrote this attack on polygamy. And already she was really a fine writer um, later, she became a famous poet in California history, and she took as a pen name Ina Colbreth, but her her real name was Josephine Smith 
and then she married a guy named Carsley. But she left that name behind and went as Ina Coolbreath. And so it's this paragraph where she attacks polygamy. It's very funny. And you see what a brilliant woman she already was as a young teenager. So that's the second thing. Could you be reading it for us? Let's have Terry read that. Is it right for a girl of 15, and even 16, to marry a man of 50 or 60? Can there be any love there? And has not God willed a woman to love, honor, and obey her husband? And can it be right thus to pledge false vows at the altar, in perfect mockery of all that is good and pure, in God's most holy laws, I think I see myself vowing to love and honor some old driveling idiot of 60 to be taken into his harem and enjoy the pleasure of being his favorite sultana for an hour and then thrown aside whilst my godly husband is out sparking another girl in hopes of getting another victim to his despotic power. Pleasant prospect, I must say. And this, Joe... This is of God, is it? No, never, never, never. You may preach, you may talk to me from now to eternity, but you never will make me believe that polygamy is true. Uncle Joseph has been heard to say by thousands that God promised him that if he committed no sin, that he should live even to the coming of Christ. If he sinned at all, and I do not know whether he did or not, but if he did, it was in polygamy. The third reading is um, the memoir of Emily Partridge Young, who had married Joseph Smith. She and her sister had married Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. Her sister, Eliza, who I've been talking about, and came to Utah, and there Emily Partridge was a plural wife of Brigham Young and left a diary. And it's quite a, it's a fascinating description of her life in this family. She had a difficult time with Brigham Young, but she was a really fine writer, and she wrote this memoir of her childhood. It's just delightful. It's funny. It's vivid. And um, then she wrote to her children this memoir of her marriage to Joseph Smith. And the same thing happened with Helen Mar Whitney. She wrote to her children. She wasn't writing a public document. And fortunately, now we have it and can read it, even though we're not children of either woman. And so Emily Partridge wrote this really, it's, it's detailed and it's honest in her description of her marriage to Joseph Smith, which was painful because she had conflicts with Emma Smith and kind of had to be kicked out of the home. And the marriage is kind of odd. And she ends it by saying, strange way of getting married, wasn't it? <laughs> so uh, that that's a really, that one kind of represents the Nauvoo polygamy side of my book, I guess. And who will be reading this one? Oh, that will be my sister, Tammy, Tammy Anderson.
Mrs. Durfee came to me one day and said Joseph would like an opportunity to talk with me. I asked her if she knew what he wanted. She said she thought he wanted me for a wife. I think I was thoroughly prepared for almost anything. I was to meet him in the evening at Brother Kimball's. I had been helping with a wash all day, and I was so afraid somebody would mistrust where I was going that I dare not change my wash dress. So I threw a large cloak over me and said I was going to run over to see Mother, which I did, but did not stay long and started out as if going back, but went to the place appointed instead. When I got there, nobody was at home but William and Helen Kimball. I don't know what they thought to see me there at that hour. I did not wait long before Brother Kimball and Joseph came in. Brother Heber told his children they had better go in to one of the neighbors, as there would be a council that evening at their house, and said to me, The light is not at home, and you had better call another time. So I started out with William and Helen and bid them goodbye. I started for home as fast as I could, so as to get beyond being called back, for I still dreaded the interview. However, I soon heard Brother Kimball call, Emily, Emily, rather low, but loud enough for me to hear. I thought at first I would not go back and took no notice of his calling, but he kept calling and was about to overtake me, so I stopped and went back with him. I cannot tell all Joseph said, but he said the Lord had commanded him to enter into plural marriage and had given me to him, and although I had got badly frightened, he knew I would yet have him, so he waited till the Lord told him. My mind was now prepared and would receive the principles. I do not think if I had not gone through the ordeal I did that I could ever gone off at night to meet him, but that was the only way that could be done then. Well, I was married there and then. Joseph went home his way, and I going my way alone. A strange way of getting married, wasn't it? Brother Kimball married us the 4th of March, 1843. Thank you so much to Todd's family, his sisters, for reading these clips and, and bringing these to life. This gives you sort of an insight into what you're going to get with the book. Go ahead. Tell you what, let me just ask you, pick something out and read it yourself, okay? Oh, I would, okay. I would love would to. Would you do one? Okay. Yeah, I would love to, actually. That's going to be hard to choose. <laughs> if um, we have room, you know. Oh, we'll have room. That's a great idea. Okay. Okay, Todd asked me to do a reading, and the book is full of things I would like to read. Honestly, one of my favorites is Melissa Lott's affidavit in the Temple Lot case, where she's being interviewed about her relationship with Joseph Smith. It's way too long to read, but it's definitely worth getting the book to listen, because even though I've read these affidavits before, just having them in the book is super handy, and you really see what these women went through um, and how they view these marriages and sort of it, it, it's hard because the the guy asking her the questions and the affidavit drives him crazy. He's deliberately trying to confuse her and humiliate her and question her intelligence and, and she holds her own and, and talks about the history. So it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. But I thought I would return to a story that um, is really over the years as I've you know, when I started off with the wives of Joseph Smith on this podcast and then grew into the history, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had 
no idea what I was getting into. And the story of Lucy Walker has really stuck with me because I've now met many women of all different sort of Mormon groups who were married at young ages, like 16 and 17 years old, and talked to them about their stories and heard the variety of experiences that they've had. And Lucy Walker was one of the first, you know, teenage brides of Joseph Smith. She married him under duress. And Todd's book has this whole chapter about her and about her life and about her feelings on it. And I've mentioned this before in, you know, the early, early episodes of the podcast, but I thought it'd be worth reminding people. So I'm going to read some, a, a section from Lucy Walker's experience, and it kind of sums up her story. She says, in the year 1842, President Joseph Smith saw an interview with me and said, I have a message for you. Now remember, Lucy's family moved to Nauvoo and then her mother dies shortly thereafter, leaving her and um, her siblings sort of at the will of their father. He can't take care of them for a lot of reasons, which, you know, Todd's book goes into. And you see at this time, Joseph, Joseph and Emma Smith take in Lucy Walker and some of her siblings and they take them into their home in the Nauvoo house and in the Nauvoo mansion and treat them like their children. In fact, Lucy says that they were called uh, the daughters and sons of Joseph Smith. So with that context, here's Lucy's experience with plural marriage. In the year 1842, President Joseph Smith sought an interview with me and said, I have a message for you. I've been commanded of God to take another wife, and you are the woman. My astonishment knew no bounds. This announcement was indeed a thunderbolt to me. He asked me if I believed him to be the prophet of God. Most assuredly, I do, I replied. He fully explained to me the principle of plural or celestial marriage, said this principle was again to be restored for the benefit of the human family, that it would prove an everlasting blessing to my father's house and form a chain that could never be broken, worlds without end. What have you to say? He asked. Nothing. How could I speak or what could I say? He said, if you will pray sincerely for light and understanding in relation thereto, you shall receive a testimony of the correctness of this principle. I thought I prayed sincerely, but was so unwilling to consider the matter favorably that I fear I did not pray in faith for light. Gross darkness instead of light took possession of my mind. I was tempted and tortured beyond endurance until life was undesirable. Oh, that the grave would kindly receive me, that I might find rest on the bosom of my dear mother. Why? Why should I be chosen among thy daughters, father? I am only a child in years and experience, no mother to counsel, no father near me to tell me what to do in this trying hour. Oh, let this bitter cup pass. And thus I prayed in the agony of my soul. The prophet discerned my sorrow. He saw how unhappy I was and sought an opportunity of again speaking to me on the subject and said, although I cannot under existing circumstances acknowledge you as my wife, the time is near when we will go beyond the Rocky Mountains and there you will be acknowledged and honored as my wife. He also said that the principle was yet will yet be believed and practiced by the righteous. I have no faltering words to offer. It is a command of God to you. I will give you until tomorrow to decide this matter. If you reject this message, the gate will be forever closed against you. And now comes one of my favorite lines in all of Mormon history. She says, this aroused every drop of scotch in my veins. For a few moments, I stood fearless before him and looked him in the eye. I felt at this moment that I was called to place myself upon the altar of a living sacrifice, perhaps to brook the world in disgrace and incur the displeasure and contempt of my youthful companions. All my dreams of happiness blown to the four winds. This was too much. The thought was unbearable, for as yet, no shadow had crossed my path aside from the death of my dear mother and sister. The future to me had seemed one bright, cloudless day. 
I had been speechless, but at last found utterance and said, although you are a prophet of God, you could not induce me to take a step of so great importance. Unless I knew that God approved my course, I would rather die. I have tried to pray, but received no comfort, no light, and emphatically forbid him speaking to me again on the subject. Every feeling of my soul revolted against it, said I. The same God who sent me this message is the being I have worshipped since my early childhood, and he must manifest his will to me. She talks about it takes her a while, and in May of 1843, she finally believes that she has a witness from God and consents to be his wife. And then her experience later uh, as Joseph dies and going into Utah. So that's Lucy Walker. If you want to remember her life, go back to episode 24 where we tell her story and we mention this. But I just think the book includes the, you know, the whole totality of her testimony about this. And it's definitely worth reading. So thanks, Todd, for letting me have this opportunity. Yeah, this will this will give you some insight into to what you're getting with the book. So tell yeah. tell us the best place to get the book where you'd recommend people buy the book. Oh, well, Benchmark is a great place to buy it if you're in Salt Lake City. Otherwise, just standard places you can get it via the internet from Barnes and Noble or Amazon. So um, it's great well, to get it at Benchmark because then there's so many other good books you could buy too. <laughs> I know I'm always telling people you have to get it at a benchmark. Not only does it support, you know, Mormon studies and this tradition of Mormon book buying, but it's just a fun experience. Cause even if you don't live in Utah, you can go to their website or I always recommend right. calling them up and bugging them on the phone directly. You'll get Brian or Chris on the phone. Yep. Really that's fun. right. That's right. You can, you can go to their webs, the benchmark books website. And they they have sales periodically, so you can get discounts. And um, for my book, I've signed a bunch, and so you might be able to get a signed book. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking time to come do such a thoughtful interview and to reconnect with people. I know your research has been so important for people. It it's easy for you when you're you write a book and you put it away and move on to other things to forget the impact that that book is still making in people's lives. And you say you're not a big name in Mormon studies, but I disagree. I think uh, <laughs> it's foundational to so many people's lives and choices and the way they view themselves and this heritage. So it really is an honor to, to be your friend and to be able to have you come on this podcast when so much of it was inspired by your work. Thank you. And let me tell one story, okay? Okay, I'd love it. Bef before I go, that's kind of related to you. Um, I knew nothing about feminist Mormon housewives. And one day I happened to be, at, there was an MHA meeting. I think it was in, that's Mormon History Association. I think it was in Ogden. And so I was, I happened to be at one of the book tables, behind one of the book tables. And this woman came up to, to me and introduced herself and this was Lisa, Lisa Patterson. And she said, you know, she explained about feminist Mormon housewives. She said, I want you to know that we love in sacred loneliness and we've got your back. <laughs> so, and of course you were one of the really important members of feminist Mormon housewives too. And well, so Lisa was the one who started it all. I feel similarly about Lisa. She, I always say she was sort of 
the God godmother into this journey for me because I wouldn't be here without her either. So I love the idea of two of you talking about that. We do. We have your back. Uh-huh. So I, I that was a great way where she put it, where like she was defending me. So I appreciate I and it, you know, over the years I've come to realize that that um in sacred loneliness has it's kind of like it's it's more than just the book and it's more than me. There's a lot of people have been adding to the community. And, you know, you're a great example of that with your polygamy. And uh, what Lisa said is an example of that. So I want to thank you and people like you um, at this point also. Well, thank you. And thanks for bringing up Lisa. Cause yeah, now that the, your polygamy sort of morphed into its own thing. It really did start off, as anyone knows in the early episodes, that old school bumper of feminist Mormon housewives, because this sort of broke off from the work that she started. So yeah, we really are links in those chains. Um, tell me just, out of, and I told you, I'd ask you a couple of questions. Of course. How were you, how were you introduced to In Sacred Loneliness? I think I Oh, that's a really good question. It was definitely through Feminist Mormon Housewives. I think it was probably huh. Lisa that introduced it to me. I was not a scholar by any means. I, you know, um, married into a rural family and it was kind of not a priority to work or go, go to school. So I gave up on any dreams for that. And I was just really troubled by polygamy. And I think it was Lisa that first recommended that I read that. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it felt like um, for for several years, I was in so much pain about polygamy. I had known about it. And really at the time, we got to think about like, uh, what is this? Like 15 years ago, the internet did not have all the content it had now about these women. And so it was mm. very hard to find stuff. And it was really hard to talk to anyone about it. A lot of people didn't know about it. And so your book was really the first time that that silence was broken for me. And and what was so remarkable about it was it wasn't like I was talking to a historian about it. It was like the women themselves were talking to me about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what felt so, like I said, revolutionary and why it's just, you know, such an important part. And I think the feminist Mormon housewives already knew about it because you were so, so unique at the time in that you were prioritizing women's voices and Mormon history still struggles with that. Even Brian and I, who are doing the Sunstone Mormon history podcast, it's so easy to focus on the prominent men because they're the ones that show up in the records the most in the mm-hmm. institutional records. And I think your book was very different in that way. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't just gush, uh, you know, it really, your book did change my life and uh-huh. changed countless lives. I, it's again, it's funny to think when you're just looking at that microfilm <laughs> that it seems like an exciting internal thing that's happening, but you don't realize that it's going to sort of explode into all of these different corners of the world. I was just worried about, gee, will this, will this crazy book even get published? You know, <laughs> <laughs> also I'm not a historian, you know, like I wasn't trained to be a historian. So Oh, your research is so solid. Again, um, the frontier life, it was just a wonder with what you were able to pull together and your footnotes are some of my favorites. So 
I think you're definitely a historian. Yep. Well, I think you you are too. So. Um, well, thanks again, Todd. I look I forward to the Juanita Brooks. Uh, you and me both. I got. I just turned in the first two parts, and the third should be shipped off in a few months, and then it's off to editing. Great. Great. Well, thanks again so much for coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me. heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.